The Bible reading for this morning is Revelation 11. For those who are new, it's the last book in the Bible of the New Testament. And let me see. If there's still Bibles on the back table, just if you want to grab a copy, there will be a bookmark in there, so it's easy to find. Revelation chapter 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of the gods and the altar and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord is crucified. For three and a half days, Men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At the very hour, there was a very severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judgment, judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Thank you, Trudy, for reading God's word. Uh, join me with me as we pray.
Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful today that you are the one who puts a new song in our hearts, who cleanses us from all our sins, who sets our feet upon the rock and gives us life forever. Our gracious Lord, all glory, honour, power and praise be unto you forever and ever this day. Lord, we gather together, weak and needy. In your great mercy and your abundant love and eternal power, please give to me, Father, a heart that's uplifted to serve you well this morning and give to all of us, Lord, that anointing of your spirit through which you graciously and mercifully and we pray powerfully work in each one of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that most people have questions about the future. So, for example, when the environmentalist looks to the future, they ask, what will become of our planet? When the politician looks to the future, they ask, what will become of our party? Who will be in power? When the economist looks to the future, they ask, what will become of our prosperity? But what about those of us who by faith see the invisible God? What are our questions about the future? Especially in the light that we've read in Revelation of God's final coming judgment. What does the day of the Lord mean for the church? Would you look with me at verse 1 of Revelation 11? I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. In the New Testament, the temple imagery is applied either to the Lord Jesus Christ or his bride, his beloved church, his people. So, for example, you might remember when Jesus said to the religious leaders, destroy this temple and I'll rise it in three days, he was talking about himself. But then if you flick over to Ephesians chapter 2, the church itself here is described as the temple of a living God through which he dwells by his spirit. Here in Revelation 11, the temple imagery, which comes up again, it's fairly clear that it symbolises the church, not Christ, because the very focus of Revelation chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11 is on his church. You might remember that there is a pause between the sounding of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, and in that pause, the camera focuses on God's church, his beloved people. Why then is John told to measure the temple, the altar, and to count the worshippers there? Well, the background of this passage is seen in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. In those chapters, Ezekiel has a vision, like John, and it's a vision of a temple. And what Ezekiel sees, or he observes, is the temple in Jerusalem being painstakingly measured. Everything is measured. Ezekiel's vision was in preparation for the rebuilding of a physical temple in Jerusalem after it was destroyed by the Babylonians. 
So at the time of Ezekiel, in the exile, God was telling his people through Ezekiel and through that vision, even though they are living outside of a promised land, even though they are under God's judgment, he still dwells amongst them. God is saying through Ezekiel, my sovereign saving presence will keep you safe. Even though they failed God terribly, so Ezekiel's vision of a temple being measured was a vision of hope. It was a vision of reassurance for God's people that even though they've lived under the judgment and they're outside the promised land, one day they'll be back. The temple will be rebuilt and God's sovereign saving presence will dwell amongst them again. When we come here to Revelation, this vision now of John measuring the people of God, God's temple, is a vision of hope and reassurance for us here. Because whatever is measured at God's command is under the direct control of God himself. See, how, do you, how can you be sure that you are safe in Jesus? How can you be assured that you will rise from the dead when you die? How can you be sure that your sin will not be held against you? Christ has your measure. Because when you measure something, you have a purpose. You're either going to enhance it or preserve it or protect it. See, God will most certainly keep his people safe in the day of a final judgment. How so? He has our measure. Let me give you an example of this from the Old Testament. Just for a moment, bring to our minds that great servant of God, Moses. Did God not have his measure? As a baby, kept from being slaughtered through his parents' faith. He grew up and God took him safely through the house of Pharaoh. Do you remember God appeared to him, commissioned him and equipped him to deliver his people? I could take you all the way through his life, but let me take you to the end of his life. Moses was one, if not the greatest servant of the Lord in the Old Testament. But because of his sin, he died outside the promised land. It's shocking. One of the greatest Israelites fails to receive God's promised inheritance. Why? Because of his sin. Contrary to how this looks, even in Moses' sin, God has his measure. Where do we see Moses in the New Testament? He's in the promised land. He's talking. No, he's not. He's communing with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Sins forgiven. Redemption received. Moses safely in the promised land with his Lord. God had his measure even in his sin. And my sisters and brothers, this is true for each one of us here this morning. Through the power of Christ's blood... 
he will land you safely in the promised land. No matter how bad you have messed up, and quite frankly, haven't we messed up so badly? But no matter how sinful your sin is, like Moses, God has your measure. Even in your deepest failures, in your brokenness and your sin. See, in this verse, first verse of, of Revelation chapter 7, it's a vision of hope and reassurance that we are safe in the Lord Jesus. He has our measure. He knows us completely. Not only for the time when he, when, when he comes in that final judgment, but truly for today too. But just because God has our measure, that does not mean we will not suffer. This is what verse 2 is saying to us. Look with me at verse 2. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because he has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Why is John not to count the outer court? He tells us. It's been given over to the Gentiles who, for a period of time, trample on the church. Trampling is very striking language, isn't it? It paints a picture of pain, injury and death. While the church has and always will be eternally safe in Christ, it is destined to experience suffering. Why does the church suffer? Uh, look with me, verses 3 and 4. And I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, once again, God is using these wonderful imagery, imagery symbolism, to express something of the magnificence of his truth. And again, these verses, we understand these verses in the light of the Old Testament. So the two witnesses and the two olive trees and the two lampstand are symbolic of the church as a whole. But this time, it symbolises our role. And that role is to bear testimony about God to a hostile world. So in Deuteronomy 19, two witnesses were required for a testimony of God to be heard. In Zechariah 4, the nation of Israel is described as a lampstand with two olive trees feeding oil into the lampstand. So the lampstand in Zechariah 4 was to give light and the oil is described as the power which will... will Make Israel shine. And that power is clearly in Zechariah 4, the Holy Spirit. That's the symbolism. Now, these symbols are now applied in Revelation here to the church of God as a whole. You see? So the images of the two witnesses and the two olive trees and the two lampstands is symbolising what we're to do as God's people, which is to shine God's wonderful, beautiful, glorious, divine light into a horribly dark world through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
You will notice that the witnesses are witnessing for 1,260 days in verse 3. That is the exact time as for 42 months by which the church will suffer persecution in verse 2. The 42 months, the 1,260 days and the three and a half years are again a symbolic of a, of, a, of a period of time, a shortened period of time where there is intense suffering. Now, the direct cause of a church suffering is her testimony. Look at verse 7 with me. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast comes up from the abyss, will attack them and overpower and kill them. We're being told here that when the church finishes her role of bearing testimony for God, there comes this beast. And we'll see later on, this is the Antichrist. And this beast, this Antichrist, inflicts terrible, terrible damage upon the church. These verses are telling us that in the last day, the church will suffer severe persecution and it will be global. Why are God's people killed? I mean, what does the church do that provokes Satan's wrath and the world's approval? Well, it's not actually what they did. It's what they said. Now, look with me at verse 10. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived upon the earth. The testimony of the church tormented the world. Friends, the message of the gospel, which is God's good news concerning Christ, we must remember it's a message of salvation from judgment. As Graham has wonderfully led us today, it's a call to repentance, turning our hearts away from sin. It's a call to humble ourselves before the Lord, confessing our sin. It's a call to put our faith and trust in Christ alone so that he will give us the life that lifts us up into the very presence of God himself. And the reality that these verses are teaching us is that the world is not always receptive to such a message. And isn't this true today? How would the environment movement respond if a church preached, repent from worshipping the creation, Mother Earth? How would the secular world respond if a church uh, preached, repent from your worship of money? How would the LBGT community respond if a church preached, repent from your immorality? And how will the world that champions tolerance respond to the church if we preached, Jesus is the only way to God and that all other religions are not only wrong, but ultimately a manifestation of evil? it would respond with hostility. 
this is true in the present, and what Revelation tells us is that this will be true in the future. Uh, just a word on verses 5 and 6. These verses remind us of Elijah's and Moses' ministry, miraculous and spectacular. To me, what they seem to be saying is that in that time of God's final judgment, which is yet to come, the church will have a powerful ministry. And during that time of its witness, the church will be protected. It won't be harmed. But when the church's witness is finished and the Antichrist comes, there's an attack that results in believers being martyred. But then we read that in verses 11 to 14 that they'll be resurrected. And it terrifies the world. And the reason being is that it, well, it terrifies the world is that murder is the last resort of man. What can you do to someone if murder doesn't work? What do these verses mean for us this morning? Well, again, it means many things, but let me bring to you one. We must be prepared to share with the world an honest testimony about God and willing to suffer loss. Now, there's only one way in which we could ever fulfil such a role, and it's through faith. See, faith looks at everything in the light of eternity. Let me take you again back to Moses. He is the most striking example, I think, in Scripture of his truth. Do you remember Moses had a choice? On the one side... He had the lust of the flesh, the pleasures of sin, the lust of the eye, the pride of life and the riches of Egypt. That's on one side. On the other side, he had, the choice was to be evilly treated with God's people and suffer the reproach of Christ. That was a choice laid before him. What enabled him to choose suffering and loss? According to Hebrews chapter 11, it was faith. Faith enabled him to see the unseen eternal realities and lasting possessions of all eternity. They were more real to Moses than the temporary things offered in Egypt. Hebrews 11 tells us that he looked with the eye of faith to his reward. Again, how was Moses not afraid of Pharaoh? Can you imagine confronting the most powerful man in the world with a word of God? How did he do that? Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, he saw the invisible God. See, by faith, the invisible God was more important, more powerful and more real than Moses himself. My sisters and brothers, faith is that faculty of our soul for which God works powerfully, giving to us the certainty of things unseen and the surety of things hoped for. Let us call upon the Lord to give to each of us such a faith that every decision we make is in the light of eternity. Let us call upon the Lord to give to us a faith like he gave to Moses. Certainty of what we don't see and surety of what we hope for. Now, if this morning, like me, you have a true desire to give an honest testimony of God to the world and a genuine desire 
to give up everything for Christ, but you feel so weak and incapable. That's how I feel. If that's you, don't despair. Rest your faith in the Lord Jesus and call upon him because he is willing and able to do what we can't do for ourselves. There is no way, apart from faith, we can bear an honest testimony about God to a world that's hostile, nor be willing to give up everything for Christ. But remember, Christ lives in the power of an everlasting life. He is your great high priest. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. The entire power of the universe is mediated through him. He promises to give to us all that we need to give up all for him. So my brothers and sisters, don't despair. Call upon the Lord Jesus to enable you to live the heavenly life today, just like Moses, and he will answer that prayer. Chapter 11 not only reveals to us the safety and the suffering of God's church, but its triumph. Look with me at verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So now we actually have the last trumpet sounding. Do you remember in chapters 8 and 9, six of the trumpets sounded and they brought horrific judgments upon the world? Then in chapter 10 and right up here, chapter 11, verse 14, we have this pause to reflect upon the church and, and God answers these wonderful questions and shows us that we're secure in his sovereignty, we're assured in him, we're safe in him. Now, in chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh trumpet blasts and God's kingdom comes. This is an incredible vision of the uncontested reign of Christ beginning. And for everyone who's in Jesus, this is most wonderful news. Uh, look with me at verse 16 and following. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and all those who reverence your name, both small and great and for destroying those who destroy the earth. These verses speak of that glorious day when the Lord Jesus will make all things new. It's a wonderful vision, isn't it? Can you imagine that day when everything that is old and broken and sinful and corrupted is just wiped away? You'll notice in verse 17, the elders give thanks to the Lord, they proclaim to the one who, is, one who was and the one who is. Now, you may have picked up it in Revelation. Up until this point, God's been proclaimed as the one who was and is and is to come. Right? Why don't they say, and this is the one to come? Because Christ has come. That's the point. 
The judgment of the world is at hand. It's too late for the time of repentance. The time to turn to the Lord is over. But for the church, for you and I, this is the beginning of that time when we share in Christ's eternal reign. This is a concept that I don't think any of us, I'm sure none of us, able to grasp fully. But Christ promises to share his reign with you. Have you heard of anything more extraordinary? More generous? More gracious? More loving? More incredible? I don't think there is. What that day will mean is that while the church at this time suffers the sufferings of Christ, in the new kingdom we will share in the triumph of Christ. And that is our destiny. See, that's what becomes of the church. See, what becomes of the church? What's our future? We share in the triumph of Christ. We're going to explore this more fully in following chapters, but just for a moment, let me just indulge you a little. Can you imagine having a body that will never die? Can you imagine you never have to sit in a doctor's waiting room again? Sorry, doctors. <laughs> You'll never go to hospital. There's no cemeteries, there's no funerals, there's no separations, and there's no goodbyes. Can you imagine living in a physical world? Again, we'll come to this later, but heaven is not this sort of airy place where we float around as angels. In scripture, heaven is a restored earth. It's a renewed earth where we have new bodies. Can you imagine in a world you... Your work will never be a burden. Your relationships will never break and pain will never be felt. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Can you imagine, and I think this is the best part, living in a world where you never have to listen to a sermon again? <laughs> because you'll see with your own eye the word of God personified in all his glory. That's the triumph of Christ. And that's what he's promised to share with us, our good and gracious God. My brothers and sisters, while we live on this side of heaven, it's through faith that these blessings become more real to us than the temporary possessions of this world. Please be assured, hear God's word this morning. You are and you always will be safe in Christ. He has your measure. He will land you safely in the promised land, even though at times you may feel very shaky. By faith, let us bear an honest testimony about God to this world. And through faith, know that we can suffer the loss of all things. And friends, let us with the eye of faith look to the future, to the things unseen, and let God be all 
that he'll do all in us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, words cannot fully describe, nor can we attribute praise and honour to you that fully encapsulates your infinite glory, your infinite goodness and your infinite love. But in our weakness this morning, Father, and our brokenness, we gather together and say all praise and glory to you, him who lives forever and ever. Father, would you please give to us, like you gave to Moses, a faith where our reward and the eternal realities will be more real to us than what we see around us. That through such faith you would powerfully work in us. That we'll not be afraid of a world, but give an honest testimony about you. And suffer with patience and love and grace whatever, whatever is in store for us. And gracious Lord, grant to us that faith in Christ where we'll know the assurance and the security that he always has our measure and we are always safe in him. Father, we look to you and give to you all that you'll do all in us. In Jesus' name, amen.